are holy and you are capable, Father, of things that will forever remain mysterious to us on this side of heaven. Lord, as we look into your word, we pray that it would be edifying to our souls, Father. May we come today with soft hearts, Father, hearts that are willing to hear what your spirit has for us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, good morning, Mercy Hill West. It is an honor and the pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, for those of you who do not know, we'll get uh, through the most insignificant part of this sermon. That is my name. It is Matt Beachy. Um, like I said, it is a pleasure to be with you. It is an honor uh, to bring you the Word of God this morning. If you've been following along with us, excuse me, uh, this year we're going through the book of Romans. Uh, this morning has us in the ninth chapter of Romans. Today we are going to look at Romans 9, verses 1 through 9. Uh, let's read those. Starting in verse 9, it says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, According to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we just pray now as we look at it that you would stir our hearts where it needs stirred, convict us where we need convicted. But ultimately, Father, that it would draw us to you, that we may experience your love in a new way. Amen. All right. So, typically at this point of the sermon, I would give you some sort of illustration to set everything up. And I promise 
we'll get there. However, I felt it necessary to give you a couple opening comments uh, before we get into the text, but just more about the text. When we look at Romans 9, what we are going to see is that what you can see throughout the history of the church is that this is quite possibly one of the most debated chapters um, in the book of the Bible. Uh, it's very controversial. They have, people have debated what this all means. And the reason it is is because what we are going to touch on briefly today, but we are going to sit in over the next two months, and Paul is going to play out here, is what we would determine as the doctrine of election. Now this doctrine is not just only found in the chapter of Romans 9, it is throughout the entire Bible. You cannot read the Bible without understanding or see that all of the Bible speaks on this doctrine. And that is the doctrine of election. When we talk about the doctrine of election, we also talk about the providence or the sovereignty of God. These are essentially three peas in a pod. We must hold them all together because not somebody said something or because somebody that we agree with says it, but because as believing Christians... If the Bible is what shapes our perspective on the world, we must understand this because the Bible speaks about it. And as we mention the word election, I also understand that there's going to be a little bit of like, I don't know, it's going to make people, their hair on the back of their neck stick up. I don't know what else, how else to say it. There's going to be some resistance to this doctrine. And I preface all of this today because what, I'm, what we're going to be going into today and through the next several months is not simply just someone's opinion, but it is strictly what the Word of God has been teaching. And so I ask if the idea or the doctrine of election does in fact cause you to hesitate. I want you to think about or to look at it not necessarily from a humanistic perspective like we as humans like to, but from a biblical perspective. And what does the Bible teach and how do we let that transform our lives? Okay. So today, as we get into Romans 9, we will look back just briefly at Romans 8, and we see that Paul has ended Romans 8 in this great sort of emotional, confidence-boosting uh, several verses, assuring us that nothing now, in the future, nothing of this world, nothing not of this world, could ever separate us from the love of God. Beautifully, emotionally charged. And most theologians, or commentators would say, Paul could have 
skipped chapters 9, 10, and 11 and just gone straight to 12. The transition works beautifully. But what we often overlook and what is overlooked is Paul has set up at the end of Romans 8 before that where he's talked about the predestination. He's talked about those who God has predestined and he has talked about the elect. And he feels it necessary and it is necessary for us to take this time in chapters 9, 10, and 11 to discuss those things. And so today we're going to talk about and see that the children of the covenant are not children according to the flesh, but children according to the promise. So, in 1999, the alleged, I don't know because I've only been a fan of chess for about the last six months, but according to the internet in 1999, the greatest game of chess was ever played between Kasparov and Toplov, which are, I'm assuming, two Russians. But I do know it was 99. But basically, what was happening in the first, I don't know, 10 to 15 moves was the setup. Now, one of the fascinations I have with chess is that it's strictly about strategy and reactions to strategies. See, every player comes into chess with his strategy and how he wants to play it. Now, I, being not very good, often fall into the better player's gambits. But anyhow, in this game of chess, the greatest one ever played, it was everybody was setting up their moves. And then something happened with the white pieces where, for one reason or another, his rook was taken. Now, the rook is the piece, if you've ever seen the chessboard, it's on the ends and it can, file, it can go to the fi any file, either straight up or straight across. It's a very important piece of the game. But he sacrificed his rook. Now, this was good for the white pieces, actually. Because what would ensue over the next 10 to 15 pieces is that he would slowly but surely gain a greater advantage and choke out the black pieces until checkmate was pronounced. But it's this idea that there's this plan. And nothing brings great glory, I guess, to a chess player than when what seems like ultimate loss turns into ultimate victory. Now, I understand in this illustration, we, however, are not chess pieces in the chess game between God and Satan, nor is God reactionary in anything that he does. If he was, he wouldn't be sovereign. The point I'm trying to make here is that God has a plan, God has made his promises, and he will see them to his fulfillment. Today's part of the plan revolves around election. We are going to use Israel, or Paul is going to look at Israel as the first example, and as the second example, he will use Isaac. So, let's discuss Paul's passion. Verse 1 says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ, and I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. One of the things that Paul is about to express 
to these people or the Jewish people in Rome is going to be offensive. He actually has expressed it already in this section, if you've caught it. It's going to be offensive and it's going to be difficult for these people to understand and to hear. Now typically, when we begin to have conversations that are difficult, it's very easy for people to hear us say these things that are difficult and to hear it in malice or out of anger. Oftentimes in today's world, we get into arguments just for the sake of being right. Nothing's more important than winning the argument. From my perspective, that's fairly accurate. But from Paul's perspective, he has to let these people know that what he's about to share with them is not coming from that place. That it is truly a place of passion and hurt that he has for these people. You know, in counseling, when we talk about psychoeducation and tools, we talk about having to share difficult things with people. It's, we talk about it, and we talk about one of the tools being sharing things in a sandwich style, or a hamburger, I think about it, right? When we have something difficult to say, first, we say something that is nice and affirming and true of a person. And then we get to the meat of it, and we tell them the difficulty, the thing that's hard for them to hear. And then in the end, we, again, affirm them or tell them something nice. This is what Paul is essentially doing, is he's setting them up, and he has to let them know how much it hurts him to see where they're at. Listen to this language. I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish, now, we've all experienced anguish, sure, but at some point it has ceased. Unceasing is never-ending. Unceasing is endless. This is the amount, this is the anguish that Paul is feeling for his lost brothers and sisters. So much so that he wishes himself accursed or to be cut off from Christ. If you remember this word he uses, accursed, he also used in Galatians, in the translation of anathema, to be set aside. He's essentially, if possible, damning himself to hell for the sake of his kinsmen. Brothers and sisters, imagine, just for one second, we all know people who are not following Christ. We have family members. We have friends. We have loved ones. This is where Paul is coming from. These are his kinsmen. And he needs them to know how much he cares for them. I remind you too of who Paul, who Paul was. Saul of Tarsus. I take you back to Acts 7. You don't have to flip there, but if you remember, when Stephen was stoned, where was Saul of Tarsus that day but holding the garments of those doing the stoning? In Acts 9, I want to read for you how Paul is described before he is converted. It says, But Paul, still breathing threats and murder, against the disciples of the Lord. 
These are his people. He was right there with them. I have to imagine that Paul may feel some sort of responsibility for the current status of the Jewish people that he's writing to. These people believed to be close to Christ could not be further away. And it's breaking Paul's heart. And he needs them to know that his heart breaks for them and that what he's about to inform them of is out of true love and desire for them to know Christ. The One of my, uh, you'd ask my wife, I think valuable traits that I hold. I've been called uh, stubborn in my day. I like to think that I just know things and if I know them to be right, then they're right. Um, but it's very difficult to convince a stubborn person that they're wrong. Does anybody know why? Because there's a sense of pride that they have that I believe what I believe because I believe it to be true. That's why you can't convince me of things that I don't believe because I know it to be true and I believe it to be true. So it's true. I wouldn't put myself in that system if I didn't believe it. Or it's like giving directions. If I believe I'm going in the correct direction, it's going to be very difficult for you to convince me otherwise. Because I believe I'm going the right way. It's very easy to convince somebody who doesn't know where they're going that they're going in the wrong way. Yeah? Or somebody who believes something but doesn't really care about it, so you can convince them otherwise. This is where Paul is at. Is he is now about to endeavor into this idea or the doctrine of election to these people who believe one thing to be so true and to be so accurate, yet they are not. And his job is not just to try to convince them, but to show them, and we'll see it moving on, how what they believe is not correct. Again, the children of the covenant are not, according, are not children according to the flesh, but according to the promise. You see, there's this love of law that the Jewish, re- the Jewish readers in Rome have. And Paul, all of this, all of Romans has led up to this. Paul has extensively expressed to them what the purpose of the law is. The law condemns. It shows us where, we're, where we fall short. The law doesn't actually save us. The law does nothing but show us how unrighteous we are. Even to the most scrupulous person, even if you can live by the outward law, it is no longer just an outward thing, but it is a condition of the heart. Hatred, idolatry, lust, you can keep away from these things possibly on the external, but not the internal. It is a heart condition. 
Paul has this love for his people that he is portraying. Because what he is about to share is going to be very difficult for people in Rome to hear. It's probably going to be difficult for some of us to hear. And I'm telling you, this is where we're coming from. As I stand here today, I'm not Paul, but this doctrine of election is very important that we have to understand. So Paul has shared his heart for his brothers, and now he is going to acknowledge the Old Testament privileges. The privileges that come with being the elected nation. And so we'll look at Israel's privileges. In verse 4 it says, They are Israelites, and to them belong adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promise. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. Paul has given them as name what the privileges are of the ethnic Jew. These are things that people will, as they're hearing this in the Church of Rome, know what he's talking about. So let's talk about those. The adoption. Yes, this is a referral to God adopting his Jewish people. If you remember in Exodus, what did Moses say to Pharaoh? He told Pharaoh to let God's firstborn be let go, or he would take Pharaoh's firstborn. Right? This is the adoption of the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, to God. To the glory, he refers to the physical presence. You remember the Jews of the Old Testament, the cultural Jews, the nation experienced the presence of the Lord. They built his, his dwelling place within the tabernacle. The best example I can give you is in Isaiah 6. Starting in verse 1, it said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. Two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. To the whole earth is full of his glory. These are the people that had the privilege of experiencing the physical presence of Yahweh the covenants in which they experience. We remember the Noahic covenant or the Abrahamic covenant or the Davidic covenant. There's a history of covenants that God has made with this nation. The giving of the law, they experience this. Remember when Moses has now 
taken them out of Egypt, and he goes up to Mount Sinai, and God writes on a rock tablet the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Think about that. Yahweh, the creator of the universe, blessed these people with the commandments, with the law. These tablets came to them through him. These are the people who experienced the worship, or they learned, were told, the sacrificial system of worshiping Yahweh. The promises they experienced, the promises of Abraham, yes, but also the promises of a restoration through a Messiah. They experienced the patriarchs. They have a rich heritage of people who have dealt with Yahweh throughout the entire Old Testament. These people were given, this nation was given all of these things. Yet they rejected Christ. Now, I hesitate to use this example because I feel it may hurt some. But the Browns organization in Cleveland it came back to existence in 1999. Yes, it was a it was a great day for everybody, apparently. But over the past however many years that's been, they have had potentially some of the greatest potential to come from college football to their organization and have absolutely nothing to show for it. They have like one playoff win, right? Like, Think back to all of those draft picks that everyone's like, oh, this is the, the, this is the guy that's going to fix it all, right? I don't remember what the year was. Remember when they, you know, Johnny Manziel, this guy changed college football. He was going to be that, the guy, right? It's this idea of unmissed potential, Right? with all of this potential coming out of school that they have drafted, right, they've still missed every time. It's the same idea. This nation of Israel was given every opportunity to accept Christ. They were told and promised that the Messiah would come through their lineage according to the flesh. Right? It is the Christ who is God over all. Brothers and sisters, today we get to experience as believers these same privileges. We have been adopted into the, into the family of Christ as believers. We experience the presence of God through His Holy Spirit in us. We live in new covenant with Christ. The law is no longer an external thing. 
It is now something that has been written on our hearts. We now worship a risen Savior. We are promised eternity with Him. We have the better lineage. If you remember the story of of Isaac, right? What was supposed to happen? Isaac was to be sacrificed. And his father bound him, but did not have to sacrifice him. Jesus was bound by by the Father and was sacrificed for you and I. We have a better lineage because it is through Christ We must never take for granted these things. We are to celebrate these things. That Christ is now in us and we are in Him. We must never mistake it. It has nothing to do with us and our justification. We have nothing to do with it excuse me, but to put our faith in Christ. That is it. Again, the children of the covenant are not the children according to the flesh, but according to the promise. So now we've reached essentially the climax of this particular set of passage, or this particular section. In verse 6, it says this, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they were his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I shall return, and Sarah shall have a son. You see, Paul has addressed now his heart for his kinsmen. And he acknowledges the privileges that this nation received. But now it's time to talk about the difficult thing. At the end of 5, he says... And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. Before we move on, I do want to make a comment. This section, this little line here in itself is offensive to those in Rome reading this. Because essentially what Paul is doing is he's commenting on the deity of Christ, which was rejected by the nation of Israel. And so, the elephant in the room is, question in the room, is if God's chosen nation rejected him, did his plan One thing, when we talk about election, that needs to be understood is that it is totally 
and utterly unmerited grace. We must stop looking at it from a humanistic perspective that we are owed anything. If you remember, Abraham, what qualified Abraham to be called? Nothing. It was God's grace and mercy that was unmerited to Abraham that he showed or displayed to Abraham when he called him. And Paul has now moving from this national election of the nation of Israel's election to now individually to individual election in verse 7. He says, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. If you remember, back in Genesis 21, this is where we get this. It says this. Um, but God said to Abraham, "Be not to be displeased, because the boy, and because of your, of, because of the boy, and because of your slave woman." Speaking about Hagar and Ishmael, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. One of the things uh, that Augustine or Saint Augustine argued or commented on was this idea of the visible church and the invisible church. There is a visible nation of Israel and there is an invisible nation of Israel. There is a visible church today. We are in a church building. Many people, I'm sure, went to a church building today or had church in a home. But just because you're in the visible church does not mean that you're in the invisible church. Not all people who attend a church service today or next Sunday or the next Sunday are children of Christ. It is only, brothers and sisters, when we confess Him as Lord and we put our faith in Him Or we will be saved or become members of the invisible church. Now, a few comments when it comes to election. First is that we cannot know who is or isn't elect. We cannot know how we are being used individually to bring about God's will. You see, it all comes back to this idea, and as humanists, we love this, the idea of free will. I would argue even more as Americans, we love this. This idea of our own freedom and our own free will. And I'm not 
saying that we don't have free will. We can choose to do things. But it doesn't mean that our will is ultimate, that our will is the sovereign will. If you remember the story of Abraham, he was called, and then he was promised an offspring, and then he got older. And him and his wife thought, well, this is something that we got to do, because he made this promise, but, you know, we'll do something. And so they decided to have a child with Hagar, the slave, named him Ishmael. Yes? But Ishmael was not the child of the promise. Isaac was the child of the promise. Romans 8.30 says this. 29 and 30, sorry. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Ultimately, we need to see this through God's perspective and not from our own. As humans, and Paul has covered this, we are born in Adam, which means we are born in sin, which means we stand directly in offense to Christ. People say that this is not fair. I don't disagree. Salvation, if by grace alone, is how it's done, then yeah, grace is unmerited. There is nothing we do to deserve it. Actually, if we allow the Bible to determine how we view ourselves and how we view the world, fair is what we don't want because we are bound for destruction in our own sin and nature. He chooses to save his bride his invisible church. And all of the glory belongs to him. All of it. This is why when we talk about sovereignty and providence and election, it's all in the same vein. Because all of the glory at the end of time will be his and no one else's. Now, another illustration. When I was a small child, I used to enjoy playing sports video games on a PlayStation 1 and then a PlayStation 2. But probably mostly in like my PlayStation 1 days when I was not good at them. You would start these games, you would start what they would consider a dynasty, which is basically you run from a GM position a team for so many years, whatever. But anyhow, I hate to lose, and I'm not very good at the video game, at least back then. So what I would do is I would determine who was going to win long before the game ever started by playing the opposition for about the first three quarters of the game. So naturally, 
I would play as the opponent. So if my team was, say, the Browns, for the first three quarters of the game, I would play as the opponent to ensure my victory by switching over in the fourth quarter to the, right, to the good team side so that I could win every game. It was beautiful. Some of you scoff at uh, my desire and need to win, but it is what it is. All of that to say, it's a silly illustration, I understand. But God has sovereignly, providentially elected his bride. Now that does not mean that we can just sit around and do absolutely nothing. Please hear me. It is still our responsibility to put our faith in Christ. It is still our responsibility to share the gospel. We still have a responsibility. We are still tools being used to bring about His will. The doctrine of election is that of great news because it has shown us God's overflowing mercy and grace. Again, by definition, if we are saved by grace alone, it wasn't owed to anyone. When you put your faith in Christ, it's because he's done a work in you. John 6 says this, that no one, Jesus speaking here, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws me, or sent me draws him, excuse me, and I will raise him up on the last day. We pray for people to come to Christ. Right? And in that, what do we pray but for God to do a work in their heart so that they may repent and believe in Him? We don't ever, as believers, thank God that we were so wise that in our wisdom and sovereign will that we chose Him on a whim. We thank Him for doing a work in us to bring us to Him. Just like Isaac was a child of the promise, so, believer, you are a child in that child. You are in the promise. Excuse me. couple of closing comments. No one knows the will of God. No one knows who his elect are. Except for him. We are to live in mission. We are the tools in which he brings about, we bring about his will. When we talk about election and sovereignty and providence, I give you one final illustration. 
We all remember Joseph and his coat of many colors, yes? So it was by coincidence that his father gave him this coat of many colors, yes? And was it truly all coincidence that his brothers initially wanted to murder him, but then by coincidence randomly got the idea, well, we'll just throw him in a pit. And then all of a sudden, by coincidence, a slave trade came by and they coincidentally just wanted to sell him to that slave trade, who coincidentally stopped in at Potiphar's wife, or Potiphar's house and was sold there. And it was only by coincidence that Potiphar's wife was less than scrupulous and did some things that were uh, not so great. But it ended up coincidentally throwing him in prison where he met some men who were having some troubles with dreams and he interpreted them. And coincidentally then when he got out, they were working in Pharaoh's court who was also coincidentally having these bad dreams. So they coincidentally remembered that Joseph can interpret these. And they brought him to Pharaoh. Then he becomes prime minister during the famine. And on the exact same day that his brothers came to Egypt for food, he coincidentally was right there to meet with them and to reconcile them. Do you remember what he said? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And it was only by coincidence that after all of that, years later, after Joseph was gone and that Pharaoh was gone, a new one would arise and become fearful of the Jewish people living in his, city, in his country and enslave them all. Right? We're not going to continue. You get the point. I want to drive it home here. A hundred percent, Joseph's brothers chose to do those things. But God used it. And it was all according to his plan. R.C. Sproul used to say there are no maverick molecules. Everything is under the sovereign will of God. And when we totally and utterly grasp, and we don't utterly ever probably grasp election, but when we begin to understand it, the result will be that of unspeakable gratitude. So as we continue in the next several months to continue to discuss the doctrine of election, my prayer is that you will continue to see it not from a humanistic perspective from that, but that of, of a biblical, biblical one. Worship team, you can come up. I have, uh, I was thinking of how to really close this. Um, and then I found two quotes, and I decided we'll go with that. So my first quote is from Charles Spurgeon. And he said this, There is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than that of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty hath ordained their afflictions, and that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them. 
St. Augustine said this, Intelligent creatures, both angels and humans, sinned, doing not his will but their own. He used their sin, their willful sin, as an instrument for carrying out his will. For in the very fact that they acted in opposition to his will, his will concerning them was fulfilled. Brothers and sisters, the next several months, it's going to be very much intense in discussions on the doctrine of election. If you have questions, by all means, ask them. To the believer, we don't know, or you don't know, who is or isn't in the invisible church or who are the elect. We are to live on mission and know that everything we are doing is being used to bring about God's will. And if you have not put your faith in Christ, brother or sister, my prayer this morning is that you would do that. That you would get to experience the love of Christ. The comfort in his sovereignty. From now until eternity. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful um, that you have chosen yourself a people, that you've chosen yourself a bride. Lord, we may not always know why things are happening um, or what your ultimate will plan is, but Lord, um, we take rest, we take gratitude in knowing that you have called us, that you have done a work in our hearts. May it continue to do so. Would you stand with us, please?